Welcome to The Word in Ed, a show that explores the world of education. Each episode, we focus on one word and use it to provoke new thoughts, explore new trends, and discover how to improve education. This is The Word in Ed. The Word in Ed. Irrefutable. Hey, Laura. Hey, Ron. So this is part two on The Word Irrefutable. Yes, and our special guest today is Aaron Maurer from Iowa, and he's here to talk about what does it mean to have irrefutable practices in schools. Hello, my name is Aaron Maurer. I am a instructional coach for a middle school in Benton, North Iowa. Um, and then in all my extra free time, which is pretty limited, I run several robotics teams, a makerspace called the Coffee Chug Cafe, and I'm trying to constantly explore this world of project-based learning along with all my colleagues at our middle school that are pushing the boundaries and trying to figure out how to make it work with them in uh, public schools. All right, well, welcome to the show, Aaron. Would you yeah, thanks for having me, I appreciate it. You bet. So can you explore with us some challenges or problems of practice you face in, I guess, project-based learning, if that's what you're kind of focused on right now? Yeah, I would say um, one of the things that I've been trying to wrap my brain around um, the last couple months, and it's not just something that we're trying to tackle in our school, but I've had the luxury of presenting at different conferences, and we kind of hear the same type of um, conversation or concern um, in these sessions or workshops, but um, everybody's trying to be innovative in their classroom and push for this interdisciplinary project-based learning approach, whatever acronyms they want to use. But at the same time, there seems to be this this other push in education right now with um, PLCs, the, pro- the professional learning communities, where um, it's there you're striving to get teachers on the same page kind of doing the same thing the same kind of assessments um and i guess the 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 question that i have is is there a way to marry those two to make it work um and if so how or is it kind of one or the other knowing that both are kind of striving for the end result the same end result i don't know if that makes sense it's kind of a wordy question i guess you know i think that's really interesting it kind of raises the tension between sameness on one hand and difference on the other i think one of the interesting things in the field of creativity studies is that when you often blend opposites like that that's where you really get kind of creative emergence happening so i want to kind of throw that question back to you aaron and, and think about you know what kinds of things do you think might work in kind of reconciling those two efforts, which ultimately are aimed at trying to improve student learning experiences and instruction as well? But what kinds of things might you think about doing that could bridge, you know, the PLC, the, the professional learning communities that are kind of striving towards developing similar or same approaches to instruction and assessment and project-based learning, which requires um, students to do different things in different ways and be assessed in different ways. Yeah, um, when you have several teams within a grade and they're all trying to build things in their own passion and and what they're trying to develop to create this launch or bring people in or whatever it might be, you're not always able to maybe put a laser-like focus on the same standard at the same time. Uh, You know, so uh, as you go into your PLC work, how do you keep people on the same page, but then you're going into your house or, you know, your teamwork and you're, you're also pushing the envelope. So in my mind, I, I feel like it, it works in theory, but then the reality, it feels like you almost start to just kind of hodgepodge both of them and neither one really shines because I guess in the end of the day, there's only so much, so many hours in the day, you know, unless mm-hmm. you're committed to living at school. Um, I think that's where the real struggle is because both are very time consuming mm-hmm. and they're both good. Like it's not a, 
one's good and one's bad, but you know, just trying to, how do you make it all, all work? I guess there's, there's so much that goes into both of them because the stakes are so high. You know, the PLC looks good in terms of, you know, that viable curriculum and making sure you can document all the stuff's taking place. But then the beauty of, of a quality project and invisibility project is people are invested and they're excited and they're developing their own learning pathways and creating these toolkits and allow that powerful learning. I don't think can always be measured within a number. Um, so I don't know that I have an answer. I feel like I just went back and forth three different times because I, I don't know where that happy medium is. Well, when Aaron, when you first pro- pro- posed the question, in my mind, and I and I'm sitting here in, on my computer, you know, looking at my original understanding of a professional learning community is a community about uh, collegial improvement, not necessarily about alignment. And so what you just, the way you're describing your PLC is about standard alignment, not about, I would say kind of, uh, which we often use the term improvement science, which is the practical application of improvement around a practice. And so I'm curious to hear like in practice, are you is the is the hope for your PLCs really to make sure that you're all on the same page with respect to teaching a sequence and scope and sequence together, or is the practice of looking at how did you teach literacy on this particular day and how effective was it to get to a learning objective? Curious, um, why is the PLC set up that particular way? Yeah, so I think you hit on a, a couple of key things, and um, so you're definitely right. There, there are kind of I guess two different outlooks when we when we say the word PLC, and I think maybe that's kind of the the, the first red flag of it all is I think PLC means different things to p- different schools and people depending on who's done the workshops and things of that nature. Um, I always grapple with this grander idea. And I, I don't mean the sidetrack, but I'm going to bring it back. Is I think there's a huge difference between being a leader and being a manager. Um, and I think what happens is we get to a point where there's, there's so many elements in a school that a lot of times our, our, our district or school leaders are also the managers. And my personal philosophy is I don't think you can be both. I think you, you need that leader that's that visionary pushing the boundaries, kind of crown people and make them feel good and, and helping them. And then there's the manager who helps with the day-to-day activities. And so I see what happens is people go to these trainings on, on PLCs. Um, they get excited, but then where do you start? And it becomes almost the management system in the first couple of years. You know, the unwrapping of the standards, deciding on the priorities, building formative assessments. It's kind of like the first phases, but that takes so much time that I don't think we get to what I think what a true PLC is, which is what, what you talked about, Laura, that, that collegial learning, that bringing together and just sharing the, the resources. My wife's also a teacher. And so then we talk about this is, but that's what good, that's the art of teaching. That's what good teachers do. And, and do we need some sort of template or system when that's what good teachers have been doing for as long as they've been around in terms of, hey, what are you doing? Or how'd you do this? Like people have those conversations and I think they just naturally happen. But now, you know, we're trying to, I feel like in education, there's so much paperwork to prove that we're actually doing things. And we spend so much time on documentation as opposed to exploration. Um, And I think that's where it kind of gets bogged down um, in that system. But I would agree in the sense that a PLC and and the the beauty of it all is teachers coming together, educators coming together to share their learning, push their learning, and find out what, what one another is doing. But I don't think it always gets there because it gets lost in, I think I call it the, the management system of here's a template, here's a system, here's how we're going to do it, here's what you have to collect. Um, that part gets lost, which I think then plays a direct impact on, on project-based learning because if we want sameness and management of, of 
the, the middle row, we lose out on these powerful projects, which we're trying to push the boundaries um, of teaching and learning as well as learning about ourselves. Yeah, I think you raised some, uh, both of you raised some really interesting um, challenges that I think a lot of teachers and not only teachers, but I think a lot of people in applied professions face is this kind of notion of the audit culture, right? That you, you're kind of beholden to documenting the merit of what you're doing and, and that becomes, you know, an end in itself and it just kind of takes over everything. And so it's that it's, or what you called Aaron as kind of the management focus where you're just kind of doing all these kind of micro audits and documenting everything and making sure that, you know, you're hitting all these things and everyone's hitting them together, that it just overruns the um, opportunities for possibility thinking and, and new ways of teaching and learning. So I guess what would be interesting to explore, and I think because there's a tension that I think individual teachers face as well as teaching teams and leadership teams, what are some steps people can take to kind of disrupt that audit culture that I think education faces in, in a variety of different sectors and instead kind of lead with that more kind of leadership vision that you were describing when you separated leadership and management and thinking towards these kind of aspirational goals and moving towards those while at the same time, you know, doing the kind of record keeping that's necessary to document and to learn from what you're doing, but not let that become, you know, the means to its own end. I preface this in, a, in one sense in terms of, you know, I'm not an administrator or in charge of a building and I can only imagine how in the world to navigate all that, whether it's in a building or a district. And obviously having similar things makes life easier on, on that end. The, the things that I always talk about, I'm always, I've always been a huge advocate of student voice and empowering students to understand their rights and, and that kind of thing. But I think a, an element that gets lost in, in the shuffle time and time again is teacher voice. If you're a teacher and you passionately believe that what you're doing makes an impact on learning in the lives of kids, at what point do educators start to come together and not like protest and rally and revolt, but stand up and say, what I'm doing works. And come check it out in my room and come look at this and I guess start to um, own the awesome things that we're doing while also finding a way understanding that in all systems and all jobs there's certain protocols you just have to get done and, and we have to make that work because I think those conversations around formative assessments and summative assessments or whatever the goal of the building might be um, are, are also important they, they do play a role but I think we can't always just be silent and and just do things just because that's what someone told us to do. I mean, that's the very, I think the essence of a lot of project-based learning is, is to equip kids with the skills and the insights and the confidence in themselves to say, here's a problem, here's my solution, and here's why people should jump on board. We should be doing that same thing. And so I think so many times we stay quiet, we we just go along with the flow, but then we're, we're frustrated behind the scenes. Um, but I think with that, then we have to know that if we're going to stand up and say what we're doing is, is good and come check it out, then we've got to have the, the confidence to really believe in that. And I think sometimes that's that's the scary part. Um, and so we just kind of tend to blend in and just kind of go with the flow uh, because nobody obviously, obviously wants to lose a job or, you know, have something blow up in their face. And so I think, it, you know, I guess in the end, the, the cookie cutter answer is it comes down to culture, but it's so true. You know, building this place where it's 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 okay to try, it's okay to do something and have it fail, it's okay to do these things, um, knowing that 
the world's not going to end tomorrow if we try a lesser activity and it doesn't work. I think everybody will be okay. The, the, the sun will come up tomorrow and, and, and away we go. But we mark that. We have conversations around why it worked or didn't work. And, and we keep moving those, those things forward. So, yeah, I really like what you're saying, Aaron, you know, the idea of, of teacher voice in conjunction with student voice and, and really letting the work speak for itself. You know, I often talk about, you know, when you see a really powerful learning project, you don't need, you know, statistical analyses to see the impact. I mean, it hits you right between the eyes. And so if teachers and students can kind of have the courage to trust themselves and each other and their work and open their classrooms up through exhibitions and curating their work and sharing it out, that oftentimes that can meet um, those kind of auditing or assessment needs that it can really demonstrate to whatever stakeholders and administrators that there really is powerful learning happening. So I want to kind of swing this back around to Laura. Well, and I think, Aaron, you started with this interesting concept, I think, of of owning our our awesomeness. And I think I just made up that word. But like, (laughs) what do we... um, But it's it's this concept of appreciative inquiry. Because I think one of the things that as you said, is that we go to the default, of course, is to do is to be managed. Right. And, and, and you, as a prime example, I doubt that you like to be managed. Um, because but because you because you're so proud of the work that you're doing, and you are doing amazing work. And so my, my thought process is obviously building capacity, but also helping others find their own strength in their practice. And so one of the tools I often use is appreciative inquiry. Like think about your successes from today, from yesterday, from the year, practices that actually have gained traction that, that as, as Ron said, you know work. You feel it, it's in your bones, you see it in the eyes of the students, you see it in, every, in the work. And so it's finding those practices to me that allow what you're talking about, Aaron, for people to actually tap in to their to a practice that is really authentic to them. And then it's through that, I think that appreciative inquiry lens through which we get better and actually own our own journey and own our own strength. Because I think if we're constantly being told, as as Aaron, you said, to be must you must document everything. There is no space for the individual in that in that dilemma. Right. You're just saying here's this here's this worksheet, fill it out. There's no space of how do I do this. And so I think this and it's something that takes I think a little bit of time, um, and I think an intentional regularity with it that you must constantly go back to. What did we What did we do well within this project within this lesson? Because you, until you can, I think, find those highlights and those strengths, the default will be, okay, just give me the form and I'll fill that out. And so it's this empowerment and capacity building and then settled, you know, coupled with, um, I do have strength in this area. And I think allowing teachers to find that within themselves, that to me is the first step because it exists. And I know in every single classroom <laughs> In the U.S. and around the globe, there are, there are teachers that have something magical within their practice. Right. And to me, the power of, I think, as you're saying, Aaron, of raising the capacity or empowerment of teachers is to tap into that. Because once you tap into that, then people are willing to do anything because they want to have more of that. And so um, that, for me, I think is the challenge. Yeah. And then opportunity. Absolutely. And I think that's the key, I think, is to just continue to find ways to empower teachers and, and let them know that, that the work they're doing doesn't go unnoticed. And, you know, and as you do that, I think it, everything starts to 
kind of fall into place. All of a sudden, these documents don't seem so tedious because you're able to see the results of your work. Yeah, as you're sharing with colleagues, you're you're getting compliments and feedback to get better. And you know, now the the, the culture moves from uh, a negative vibe of complaining about I got so much on my plate that I can't get done to okay, I'm seeing the. The, the benefits to what I'm doing. And it's awesome that, you know, I'm teaching this lesson and Laura, you ask, and you try like, well, wow, that really worked well. Like now we're, we're kind of patting each other on the back, but everybody wins. And most importantly, the students win in, in, in the end. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's something that I think it's talked about all the time, but it's, it's so much harder to do. And I think what I really believe is that that kind of positive reinforcement, or and I like that, that appreciative inquiry starts with, with the teachers that it, you don't need a, a, a leader to make that happen. If they would just come together and self-grow that, that's an unstoppable force that no one's going to stop anyways, because the end result is what everybody's striving for in education. And I'll add one more thing onto that, because we think about documentation, as Ron mentioned. If you have nothing to show, it's easy for people to say you must document it. So my challenge, my I, think I call it an action, so to speak, is what are you going to show? Austin Kleon always says you have to show your work. And so if you're showing up and saying, here's my work, here's how we, how, here's how we mapped everything to the standard, here's the student work to prove it, and here's the assessments that we Gave. Those are documentation. And so I think your challenge of unless you have something else to show, unless you've done the work, it's easy for someone to say, well, here's this form. You must fill this out because there's nothing else to show back. And so there is something about, I would say, the subversiveness of showing your work that allows this innovation to happen. Yeah. I just wrote down the make your teaching irrefutable. And I think that right there becomes almost a driving question for professional development for teachers. I mean, here, here's your challenge for the year make that teaching irrefutable where no one can argue the great things that you're doing. Yeah, and that, what a great topic for a PLC, right? That's <laughs> a driving, yeah. driving question. And I really yeah. like, you know, kind of in closing here, I, I really like where this direction has kind of emerged um, into, the, into this kind of idea of reclaiming, you know, your professionalism and your practice as a teacher. And I think that's what this is kind of speaking to is when you start documenting what you and your students are already doing and have confidence in doing that and sharing it with colleagues also takes it out of the hands of external auditors essentially and says I can document what I'm doing and the quality that I'm doing and I know how to do that better than you know some standard rubric that I get from the district office you know I think that's a really empowering message for teachers particularly who might feel isolated or alone in wanting to do something but not feeling like they're in the kind of school environment that supports that and as you mentioned, Aaron and Laura, just by taking those kind of small steps, sharing things out with a colleague like you normally would, sharing out the risks you're taking, and starting to develop that kind of critical mass, um, I think it could turn into this kind of irrefutable teaching that could be very powerful. And on that note, everything ends in a, a positive kind of moving forward towards what everybody's after in the end anyways, as opposed to trying to beat up the system for all the wrongs. It's here's the system and here's how we can make it suitable for all of us. Yeah, let's reclaim the system as our own. I think that could be a powerful message. Thank you, Aaron, for taking time out of your day and sharing your work. Uh, you're always an inspiration, so thank you. Well, thank you, I appreciate it. It's always, you know you had a good conversation when the conversation comes to a close and you, you, you have more questions than answers. Until next time. This is The Word in Ed. The Word in Ed. 